So I gave a talk a couple years ago on pain and suicide, and it was like in the smaller rooms. It was jam full, and then they kind of have this other one. But so thank you for showing up for this. Um, again, we, we in this sort of environment of opiates are good and opiates are bad, and we all know that there are some patients who do benefit from opiates. And again, you're a villain as a practitioner if you write a prescription. Uh, I had a patient who was a retired nurse, no medical comorbidities, no psychiatric comorbidities, had horrible OA, and all she was taking was two five milligrams of hydrocodone a day so she could babysit her grandkids. Her internist sent her to me and said, I want you to do an addiction assessment. So I, I called him up and I looked at her chart and I said, why are you, so, I don't understand this. You know, she has no comorbidities, no risk. He goes, yeah, in this day and age, you know, we gotta be careful. So I said, well, I practiced in downtown Philadelphia and he was in the nice suburbs. And I said, if you think this is a lot, come to my clinic and you'll be, you'll be passing blood at the end of the day. <laughs> Two is I'm not gonna charge her. Three, you're gonna leave her alone. Like it was a very low risk patient. And we all know with OA or RA and we put them on high doses of non-steroidal anti-inflammatories, what's gonna happen? They're going to die, <laughs> right? And so again, I think we've gone way one far the other, but with good risk stratification, you know you can protect your practice, right? Good risk stratification, documentation, you can help those people who really do suffer from pain, have been refractory from everything non-opioid, and can help them. So that's what we're going to try to accomplish. I have nothing to disclose. I have many uh, conflicts of interest personally, but not professionally. Um, I wanted to define what an expert is because everyone's, you come to pain week to hear experts. And you ever wondered, like, is that guy really an expert? So Niels Bohr was a uh, Nobel laureate in physics, and he defined an expert as a person who has made all the mistakes that can be made in a narrow field. I am that expert. Okay, so long we have that definition. So here's our learning object objectives. Uh, define current opioid risk. What do we do now? What's flawed with it? What's good about it? What's the future hold for us? And really looking at definitions of misuse, abuse, and opioid use disorders, because it's confused all the time. And then understand the future. So here we're gonna start with some questions to keep you awake. Current risk assessment strategies include all of the following except A, prescription drug monitoring program, urine drug monitoring, genetic testing, and clinical interview. How many people say A? You're a good looking and smart group, I knew it. Urine drug monitoring, genetic testing, and clinical interview. Yep, 100%, genetic testing. And all these firms that come out and say you can spit in a cup and they can tell you whatever disease you're gonna have and what medication you're on is generally bogus. We aren't there yet. Question, the genetic testing. Question two, the most objective sign, if you had to ask one question to your patient of developing an opioid use disorder, how many people say depression, anxiety, tobacco use, living situation, all the above. Now again, this is objective. Some of those things are not objective, right? The answer is actually tobacco use. And we'll, have, we'll show you data to support that. Because some of this stuff is subjective about depression. Some, some are, some aren't, but the smoking is, I'm gonna show you some data that I think that will impress you that if you have one question to ask is are you a smoker? The current risk assessment tools, the ORT, COM, DIER, SOAP, were developed to determine the risk of a patient developing an opioid use disorder. How many people say true? How many say false? It's false. They were, they were actually developed on pain patients that engage in aberrant drug-related behaviors, which are not necessarily surrogates for an opioid use disorder. So you don't need this talk. You have all the answers, right? 
So we're going to talk about introduction, um, sort of pain, opioid misuse, abuse, and use disorders, which I'm sure we've all been saturated with. Again, what we do currently and what the future holds for us. So we know very clearly that untreated pain, you know, mismanaged pain can lead to really bad outcomes for patients, right? Uh, increased uh, healing in bones, neuroplasticity, chronic stress, depression, suicide, and opioid addiction and use. So when we are not effectively managing these pain patients, uh, many things can happen. There's a lot of research now, and I'm very interested in the NIH, about the chronification of pain. Why does someone have an acute injury, and the healing has occurred, but they go on to chronic pain? And some of the risk factors for that are high doses of opiates, catastrophizing. You know, there's a, lot, there's a number of risk factors that actually d develop why people go into it. And a lot of it is neuroplasticity. So I was at the International Association Study of Pain in Tokyo, and one of the members of the CDC guidelines, I hate to swear in front of mixed company, <laughs> but who's not seen a patient in 30 years, by the way, and has never done science, I was going up the elevator with this person, and I said, you know, one of the guideline questions was that for acute pain, that you really only need about three days of opiates, maybe seven at most. And if some of you may know that CVS pharmacy is now limited for acute pain, that you can only get seven days at a time. And I said, what about wind-up and neuroplasticity? She goes, nobody believes in that anymore. And I'm going, really? <laughs> really? I think it's one of the guiding principles that are still accurate. So I had a patient the other day who had a heart transplant where they fillet you. It was discharged from the hospital with three days of low-dose opiates, right? So there is neuroplasticity. There is wind-up. And we've gone way too far. Whoops, wrong way. I had to watch about walking. I was giving a talk with someone, and she was very walking around the stage. She actually fell off the back of the stage. So if I get too close, can someone yell? Can you, can you, can you spot me? Okay, that'd be good. So again, the Institute of Medicine report in 2011, which is very well-meaning, a lot of people that were not biased on either, other, either side, and they came up with some guiding principles and things that we really should keep in mind, that 30% of the adults in this country have chronic or recurrent pain. The annual cost is over $600 billion. Displacement from chronic pain affects sufferers, their families, affects all of us in society. Right? We, we have soaring health care costs, and part of it is the, our pain delivery system, which is not very effective. And protection from and relief of pain and suffering are fundamental features, as well as cardinal underpinning of the art and science of healing. As Woody Allen said, you can't get through this life alive. You can't get through this life without physical or emotional pain. And is the mandate of the healthcare system to alleviate suffering. Dr. Zakharoff, it's not to get rid of pain, right? The target of pain management is function and mood and quality of life. So just to put this in some figures that hopefully will be shocking, if you look at prevalence of chronic pain versus the other three major health, health disorders, it morphs it by prevalence. Cost of, of pain versus heart disease, again, morphs it. So this is not an inconsequential pro problem. And again, we, we kind of devolved. Remember the days when we had interdisciplinary pain programs where people came in and you had this team around you? I used to run one in, in the orthopedic department at, at Penn. People got better, you know? Opiates were part of it, but it was a multimodal approach, and I don't think we overdid opiates, right? What happened? We stopped paying for it, right? We became mechanistic again. So again, some of these problems with the opioid world is that we've not been doing multimodal treatment, and we don't reimburse for it. 
So they had some guiding principles, I'm sure you're familiar with this, that effective pain management is a moral imperative and should be considered a disease with distinct pathology. There's overwhelming, robust evidence from functional MRIs that suggests that when you go from acute, from no pain to acute pain to chronic pain, there's changes in the brain, which is a hallmark of what a disease is. But patients are still vilified and treated like they're just crazy people, right? Uh, there's a need for interdisciplinary treatment care. And in Europe, it's on the upswing because it's a different reimbursement system. And there is a serious problem of diversion and abuse of opiates. And we're going to talk about sort of the bastardization of some of these data. So let's go into pain and prescription opioid use. So again, if you saw my previous uh, talk, I'm sorry, I'm re 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 uh, repeating this, but why did we get where we are? Because back in the day, it was a very unidimensional model, right? You were a bad clinician if you didn't give opiates to everybody, right? Pez dispenser with Oxycontin in it, right? It was a focus of the pharmaceutical company. You know, they, they pushed it. They pushed through grassroot efforts that no one should suffer, you know. And it became this end-of-life model that went to a non-cancer model. And as Doug Gourlay says, it takes 30 seconds to say yes and 30 minutes to say no. You ever had an art, try to discuss with a patient why you shouldn't be on opiates? How about a new patient that comes in on high dosing of opiates? Has anyone had that experience? It made you want to be a used car salesman, didn't it? <laughs> exactly. But we pushed it and pushed it and pushed it. It became convenient. It was convenient. And again, you were not a good clinician unless you relieved their pain. We had the 0 to 10 scale. Thank you, Joint Commission of the American Pain Society, which is a dumb scale going from eight to six, but they still sit on the couch eating Doritos is not a good outcome, right? So we got focused, and, and what, what do you think the patient wanted? They wanted zero, right? We were gonna maybe get them, and what's clinically relevant or in, in terms of, a, in, if you have a treatment, what is clinically relevant? 30% reduction, not necessarily a number. Um, this slide I wanna point out, because it's shown at every, every conference. If you saw this slide, that is the opioid sales went up, it was paralleled by deaths, opioid-related deaths, and treatment admissions into pain, into, into residential treatment programs for opioid use disorder. Would you ever write another prescription for an opiate? Ever? Right? What's wrong with this data? 75 to 80% of the patient, the cohort that this was developed on, were non-medical users. Only about 20% were actually pain users that, were, that, that developed these problems. And if you look at the death rate, that came from West Virginia. And a, a colleague went down and looked at the actual coroner reports. And there, were, there was a, a minimum of an average of five different drugs on board. Opiates were just one of them. So it was a poly drug. And to be, polit to poli be politically correct, we called it opioid-related, when it should have been poly-substance-related, including opiates. So I'm not saying we don't have a problem, but we have to data with a, with a clear eye. So this is an interesting one. Is the opiate crisis uniquely a U.S. problem? Right? So Doug Gourlay, Howard Height, and I gave a talk a few years ago in uh, Granada for a European conference, and we talked about urine drug testing and risk stratification. There were literally six people there. <laughs> Three were spouses of, of, of the presenters, two were lost, and one was a janitor. <laughs> So I, I went to the head of this organization, Chris Wells, who's a UK uh, NSC. I said, I, I guess you're just not interested in this. And he said, oh, we just don't have the problem. You, you Americans supersize everything. We just don't have that problem. I saw him a few years later in Argentina, and he goes, we have a problem. So they may be behind in their music, but they also were behind in, in Europe. So just look at some of the data. This is like from 2017 across the whole EU. 
again, over time, between 2000 and 2015, there was a substantial increase in all these drugs, including opiates, increasing. This is a little bit older. It's from Finland. But if you look at 2000, these were, these were um, fatal poisonings. If you look at it, you can see it, that prescription drugs were really pretty low, and it was mostly um, heroin. But as the years went on, it kind of shifted away from illicit drugs to prescription-related drugs. So again, it's not a uniquely U.S. problem. So here's all the guesstimates of what, where we are. So anywhere between people who have chronic non-malignant pain who are exposed to opiates, anyone, anywhere from 3 to 62% develop aberrant behaviors, anywhere from 1 to 40% develop aberrant behavior, or develop a use disorder. Why do you think it's so spread like this? I mean, that's a big spread. A lot of its definitions. I always ask this, and people are getting where my other talk, I'm sorry, so let's do a little poll here. How many people think that legitimate patients exposed to opiates develop a bona fide opioid use disorder? How many people say 10% or less? And if you were at my last talk, you can't answer. 20%, 30%, over 30%. Give me a pessimist, right? So who doesn't care? Raise your hand if you don't really care. That I'm in the wrong talk. I thought I'd be learning about neuromodulation or something. So the truth is, the definitions are all kind of confused. They do these big data analyses of the VA where they look at 500,000 veterans. They look at ICD-9, ICD-10 codes, and look for opioid dependence. Well, who was making that diagnosis? Does anyone do addiction work here? Even the most seasoned addiction person has a hard time figuring out whether this is a use disorder, whether it's physical tolerance, whether it's misuse. So the definitions are everywhere. So if you look at the definitions that have been kind of mostly accepted, is misuse is using a therapeutic agent for what is intended but not as prescribed. You give them two percadoodles, they take three a day. Abuse is using a therapeutic agent for which it's not intended. So that could be inducing sleep, treating anxiety, treating depression or euphoria. Addiction or the use disorder is that out of control use, craving for non-pain use, compulsive use, and negative consequences. And we've all seen that with patients, you know? So part of the problem when you look at data is how are they defining all of these? There's several studies where, which were really well done in systematic reviews, and well, this is one. These are two that just give you an example. Boscarini had two ones. They looked at uh, using DSM-5, which is theoretically more sensitive to the making an opioid use disorder because it eliminates tolerance and dependence if they're if they're literally uh, if they're prescribed an opiate or a benzo. So he had 700 patients that were on chronic opioid therapy, and he came up with that the lifetime prevalence of OUD was almost 35%, 21% had uh, moderate, and 13% had severe, and 41% in a sub 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 subsequent study had lifetime prevalence. So the person who said 30-40 would believe that. But this is not well done. The DSM-5 does not capture use disorders and pain. Most of the criteria most of in this room would click off on, right? So... If you look at studies like by Kevin Voles um, and also a really great article by Nora Volka and McCullen in New England Journal, that's about 8% of patients with pain exposed to opiates, about 8 to 10%, right? How many people in this country have an alcohol use disorder across all populations? 8 to 10%. Cocaine use disorder, 8 to 10%. It's just a 10% across all populations. So again, this is the kind of data, if you're really interested in this, is that, that we have to really look at it on a more granular basis. Now, this is one from Sanford from 2018. Now, the good news is that there's been a decrease in, in pain reliever misuse. 
So it's gone from 11.4 million of opioid misusers in 2017 down to 9.9 .9 of prescription pain relievers. But 9.9 .9 million is still a lot of people, right? And again, we also have people who abuse it, which is also creates problems in their life. So we have this pendulum of policies, right? Opiates are good. Opiates are bad. Opiates are good. Opiates are bad. Opiates are good. Opiates are bad. I'll tell you a story. I was giving a talk at the American Geriatric Society in Portland, and it was the pros and cons of opiates. What a loaded thing to have in these days. So there's 300 geriatricians there. And so I went, I had, and of course I had the pro, you know, and of course I had to defend that. And the person who was the con was really sort of anti-opiates. And so I said, the pros and cons of opiates in this environment is like the pros and cons of Trump. There's nowhere in the middle. Half the people laughed and half didn't. <laughs> so I stayed away from those half of the group. But it, it really is this black or white thing. It, you shouldn't give anybody on opiates or that we all should have be on opiates. And it's not true. I mean, if you look at a study that was done a few years ago of upper extremity orthopedics, and they had 250 patients that had like a carpal tunnel, which you really don't need opiates. On average, 249 got 30 tablets of oxy, right? They called the patients a month later and said, how many did you take? On average, 10. What'd you do with the other 20? Put them in my medicine cabinet which translated to over 4,000 tablets of Oxy on the, in, the, in the community, right? So we overprescribed it, it got into the community aquifer, and we have this problem. On the other side of it, as we all know, there are people who are refractory to lots of different pharmacotherapy and non-pharmacotherapy, that the, uh, the opioid therapy in selected good patients is a, is a game changer for them. So we need to find the middle ground. Who's at risk, who's not at risk, and how can we make that decision? So this is an interesting uh, thing that came out a few years ago. They asked the people on the street, do you believe that prescription painkillers can result in addiction? Just exposure over time. And over 80% said yes, right? And that's really not true. This is a great slide from uh, the uh, NIDA. And it, it, opiates do not create addiction, right? It's a confluence of your biology and genes. You picked your parents poorly the environment you live in. You could have the predisposition, but with a strong support system might mitigate that. The actual drug, how rapidly it goes to the brain, actual brain mechanisms all filter through to addiction. So it's not as simple as that you, if you're exposed to it over time, you will get addicted. This is a slide I borrowed from Lynn Webster, but here's the issue. We have this group. We have one group that has no addictive disease with exposure. Patients take it, it makes them sick, they don't even like it. We have another group that has an addictive disease after opioid exposure. They have that first, I had a patient the other day, it's an interesting guy, was manager of a company, and he OD'd at work, you know, and he had, took, he snorted three different times throughout the day some oxy, and he literally was cyanotic, they had to have two, had two, two Narcans on him, his wife worked there, very traumatizing, right? So I took his history and I said, well, when did you first have an opiate? He said, well, I had a shoulder surgery at 22. I took my first opiate and I went, wow, <laughs> you know? So again, he said, wow, uh, that really did something different to me. And that's the brain mechanisms. The ones you worry about is there's no addictive disease because they've never been exposed, right? Those are the ones you kind of worry. Someone who has a strong history of substance abuse, you know, I mean, you, you understand that's a higher risk patient. But what about the woman who, person, man or woman who comes in your office and they've never been exposed to it? How can we tell who's at risk and who's not at risk? 
So the issue of pain and addiction is complex. It's a confluence of pain disorders, which overlap with psychiatric disorders, which overlap with addictive disorders, and actually the effect of the drugs. This combined effect is what leads to use disorders. And trying to figure out who's at risk and not at risk with all these kind of comorbidities is very challenging. So we have a treatment dichotomy. We have a molecule that in selected patients improves their quality of life, allows them to exercise and do all the things that we advise them to do. But we also have a subgroup of people that are vulnerable to developing a use disorder. How do we tease it apart? So spot the addict. I think it's the guy with the funky hat because I would have to be high to wear that hat. That's just my opinion. <laughs> but spot the addict. This is all your patients coming in. Who's going to get in trouble? Who's not going to get in trouble? What are the subtle signs that we're going to get in trouble? So what, let's look at the present. What do we do today? What? We do clinical interview, looking at past, looking at medical records, looking at past history, looking at electronic medical records, have they had any his, history of abuse, psychiatric comorbidities, risk screening tools, urine drug testing, and now the prescription drug monitoring program. So let's dissect each one of them. I always recommend that you do mental health. We, we will do like you know, the ORT and the COM, but we really should look at mental health issues because, again, relapse in patients is usually caused by increased stress. And there's going to be a huge group of patients that don't meet criteria for use disorder but have abuse. Patients like opiates because it's, it's axiolytic. It's a hedonic effect, right? Patients will say, it makes me feel better. So how much of that is depression and anxiety? And talk about opioid sparing. You have patients on moderate high doses of opiates, and you effectively treat their anxiety. Guess what happens to their opioid use? Drops right down, right? So it's good to have kind of a marker of depression and anxiety. And here's a variety of them that are on, available. The PHQs are, are free. And so again, I think it's routinely one should always you know, do some quick monitoring of the depression and anxiety. The PHQ-4 is particularly helpful, like in primary care because it's two questions, screener for anxiety and two for depression, and if they mark on any one of those, you can do a more detailed evaluation. But again, this is all dynamic. Patients you take a shot here, they're not depressed or anxious, doesn't mean three months from now they're not. They lost their, their, their job, they went through a divorce, whatever it may be. So you need to have this as a marker of abuse and possible uh, addiction. Here's all risk assessment tools. Is everyone pretty familiar with all of these? You know, the top three are ones that look at long-term, if you're considering putting someone on long-term opioid therapy, which means after 90 days. Second group are ones where they're already in treatment. Again, these are all based on pain clinics that people who engage in aberrant behavior, not necessarily opioid use disorder. But this is what we have today. This is the present. I will show you the future, I promise you. Urine drug monitoring is important. All the guidelines say the same thing, right? We should get a routine urine drug. They never say how often, though, right? So in our pain clinic at Penn, um, under the, uh, the, the rule is that every time someone comes in, they get a urine. And I told the director, that's an IQ test. You know that, don't you? Because if you give me 100 Percocet and I'm diverting them, I'm going to save five because I know I'm coming in on Monday to drop it. Um, but it is very helpful. It, but it shows a particular metabolite or drug at a particular time, right? It does not indicate drug addiction or abuse, physical dependence or impairment. And an absence of a prescription drug may reflect aversion, but also hoarding. Why would patients hoard their opiates? What? Yell it out. Fear. I don't trust you. I think that you're kind of looking at me and making me do urines all the time. Not you personally. But I trust you. And I, I'm doing pretty good today because it's warm. 
So I'm going to save up these ones, which is why they, they, get, they, they get kind of stockpiled and then get diverted. Second thing is suicide. You know, patients with pain have a high rate of suicidal ideation. I have lots of patients that take one pill and put one in a jar. And when the day comes and they can't deal with this anymore, they will end their life by suicide. So again, be careful. And again, never be sort of you know, vindictive with the patient. They show, you know, a positive for, you know, or a lack of an opiate. And I always say the same thing, make it make sense to me. So great stories. I love great stories. I, at my pain clinic, because I'm a pain psychologist that also does addiction, they always send me the patients that have, have positive or inappropriate urines because they don't want to deal with it. So this guy comes in and he had three positives for cocaine. And I said, I love these people. So yeah, because I don't use cocaine. I said, well, make it make sense to me, though. These are three different times you have cocaine, and they always do this. You know what it was? I don't use cocaine, but I pack cocaine from my cousin, who's a seller, and I have dry skin, and it must have got into my system. I said, okay, let me get this straight. You don't use cocaine, but you're a drug dealer. We should refill your methadone. You're absolutely right. <laughs> Another one is this woman who's a lovely person, kept having alcohol in her urine drug test. And, you know, it's a short half-life. And she said, oh, I had a glass of wine last night. And I'm going like, uh. Again, she went like this. You know what it is? I get thirsty in the middle of the night, so I keep a glass of wine. I said, funny thing, I use Jack Daniels. <laughs> right? When you're thirsty in the middle of the night, don't you, like, want alcohol? <laughs> you know? But she did get treatment, she broke down, and it was effective. But again, these are kind of the tools, and some are specific, some aren't specific, you know, and you have to be very careful about it. Prescription drug monitoring plan, right? It's been admin, it's in all but one state. Does everyone know what state that isn't? What, what's up? Missouri, it's the M state, right? So we have 49, which is good. Um, again, they can identify cases of diversion, of doctor shopping, and again, they've shown that, that using these have really kind of, kind of reduced some of the doctor shopping. Uh, one study showed that in, using a traditional drug monitoring plan, that it really kind of dropped all the kind of opioid misuse in very ways. But again, it's kind of suboptimal sometimes. How many people in the state is it mandatory to do it? How many is not mandatory? Yeah, so most states, in our state, it is mandatory. And if you are not checking a prescription drug monitoring plan, they will, the, the board will be talking to you. But it's not connected between all states. That's going to be the dream one day. So there's one state, I think it's Oklahoma, and it's connected to, like, Vermont or something, you know. And so, again, it's, there's some flaws in it, but it clearly is much more objective. And we do a lot of training of physicians in Pennsylvania about how you can use this and use this as a tool right? Like I see you're getting prescriptions. Let, let me understand it. Because you want to help the patient, right? These are people who have real problems and you have to use these things not in a judgmental, you know, kind of pejorative way, but to say, how can we help you? If you have a problem, I'm behind you. So now we do risk mitigation. We've done the assessment. How do we mitigate risk? Here's what we've come up with so far. Clinical education, REMS. How many people have taken a REMS program, right? So we have one in Pennsylvania, well, I'll get to that in a minute, abuse deterrent opioid formulations, opioid prescribing guidelines, and dosage limits. These have been kind of the major mitigation wretches. So there's no available data on the impact of training and educational strategies on clinical outcomes. Again, it was, it was kind of approved by the FDA, uh, scheduled, Schedule II, long-acting or extended release, voluntary prescriber pharmacy. In Pennsylvania, we offered a really great uh, program with 30 CMEs. For, for REMS, uh, we had Roger Chow from, the, from, uh, from out in uh, Oregon. And of all the physicians in Pennsylvania, how many people signed up for it? 
128. So sometimes people just don't follow through with it, you know. So education is part. And there's really have been no evidence that there's been an impact on clinical. In fact, there's one study that came out that people who took the REMS actually increased their opioid prescribing. Because I think they've had a false sense of, I know what I'm doing, you know. Uh, but it's partly. Also, veterinarians get more training in pain medicine than physicians. Absolutely. In, in Canada, they get 88 more hours of, of pain, uh, pain education. So part of the problem is our curriculums in nursing school, dental schools, and, and medical schools. So of those who went to medical school, how many hours in pain medicine did you get? We got the zero, right? Maybe one. How about addiction medicine? And what are the two things that give you diarrhea when you see it on your schedule? People who come in who've had an addiction and had, say, and 80% of all opiates are prescribed by primary care doctors that don't have the training, the resources to really do with that. So again, part of the problem with the, edu with the, with the whole opioid crisis is a confluence of poor training to professionals, nurse practitioners, PAs, everyone, um, insurance companies that don't pay for non-opiates. Have you ever tried to get some of these other medications paid for? Good luck, right? Um, the CDC guidelines say that everyone should have CBT, hot rock massage, acupuncture before you do opiates. How many people have access to that? So we blame the clinicians and the patients when we really should be, be blaming the curriculums and the insurance companies, and it should be a top-down reformation. Sorry, soapbox. So this is a study we just completed. We went to the um, uh, USMLE, where you know, it reflects curriculum in medical school, we looked at 1,500 questions, there were a lot of pain experts were across the country. 28% were identified as including the word pain. And in that was, patient came to the emergency department with chest pain. You know, that was the bulk of them. Um, of, the two, of the 332 questions, which were 15% of the 1,500, were assessed as being fully or partially related to pain, rather than just mentioning the pain, but not testing the knowledge of mechanisms or implications for treatment. This reflects curriculum. So the large majority of questions related to pain, 88% focused on pain assessment rather than safe and effective pain management. Does everyone see that that's a problem? And this is what contributes to the crisis here? So opioid deterrent formulations. Again, uh, pharmaceutical companies have spent millions and millions of dollars on this, right? They designed to have this tamper-resistant co-formulated with other medications like naloxone. And there's one study that showed that when oxycodone extended release was put in an abuse deterrent form, it really dropped in, in value on the street. It used to be like a dollar per molecule or, or per uh, milligram, but now it's like no one wanted it because of the abuse deterrent. What's the problem with this? Insurance companies don't pay for it because they'll pay for the generic or they'll pay for because it it's expensive. So there's been real pushback about, okay, we have this technology. The FDA said we had to do it, but the insurance, I'm not blaming everything on insurance companies, but I'm saying that that's part of the problem. You want to solve some of the crisis, then you have to kind of put your money where your mouth is. So these are all good things, but they have flaws in them. Opioid prescribing guidelines, APS, AAPM, uh, Federation of State Medical Boards, Individual State Boards, and the CDC guidelines, right? They all came out with very specific ones. About 50% just made common sense. You should get a urine every once in a while. You should do some risk assessment, you know. You should use a prescription drug monitoring plan. And some of them were pretty ridiculous. Like, again, no acute pain for, th uh, no opiates for acute pain greater than seven days. Didn't have any evidence behind it. Two-thirds of them didn't have any evidence. It was just all of us get in a group and have some wine and decide what we think is the best practices. So it's done a lot of harm and it's done some good. 
and, and they're, they're revising it now because they realize what it's done. People take it as not a guideline but as law, you know, and some states even use it as law as opposed to guidelines. So opiates have no theoretical ceiling except death, right? I've had patient, I had a patient there, Dave, was on three grams of morphine equivalent daily dose. Kid you not. And he wasn't driving a better car than me, so I knew he wasn't diverting him. There's little evidence to guide prescribing higher doses. I think all of us can agree that patients we've had on high doses just don't look very good, right? They have androgen deficiencies that, you know, a 40-year-old male who has a testosterone of a 9-year-old girl, you know, they have sleep to problems, they don't feel well, they feel bloated. So I can, we can all agree that really high doses were, are really probably not beneficial. Um, and the, and, and the, what is an upper threshold is kind of a moving target. So the APS, AAPM, and Canadian has greater than 200. Uh, CDC is 50 to, to 90. That was based on three observational studies that were poorly designed, basically. But any time, if you look at all the studies, it, it, a morphine equivalent daily dose greater than 100 really increased the harms ratio or odds ratio of an overdose. And I think there's some validity there. I had a, a nurse, um, an um, emergency room nurse at Penn. She had a serious mo motor vehicle accident, almost lost her leg, multiple surgeries, was working full-time, really great lady. She was actually way below the, the guidelines. She was taking, and she would use like the WHO ladder. She would use Celebrex first, Tramadol, and then she'd go to hydromorphone. And her orthopedist was giving her four milligrams QID as needed, which she usually used two or three, but, and she also had MS, by the way. <laughs> but was working and functional. She comes to a pain clinic, and even though she's below the ceiling, when the 90, um, they said, we need to reduce your hydromorphone. She goes, why? Well, because we have to show on the, on the records that we're, that we're actually reducing people. Made no clinical sense at all, you know. Um, she went to her MS doctor. She had an MS flare, and her neurologist said, you know what this is? This isn't MS. It's because of the opiates you're on, right? So again, and she was going to come off everything, and I said, okay, then you're going to go on disability, and you're going to get a deep depression. So again, people have been using these thresholds as if, if, they're, if they're laws. If you have a patient on 120 who doesn't have obstructive sleep apnea, who's not on benzodiazepine, who is functional, you think pushing them down to 90 is really the right clinical judgment? But there's pressure, right? If you're, if you're in a practice, there's pressure to do it. At our, at our institution, they actually have a dashboard of every clinician, PA, nurse practitioner, physician, who prescribe opiates so they can see who's prescribing what and how much. It's very draconian, but some of these people, like my nurse, are getting caught in the middle of this. So I think we can all agree that high, high dosing doesn't make sense, but there is some, you know, some variability here that we have to accept. So this is a, a developed by a colleague of mine, uh, Chang and, and Peggy Compton, and this is kind of where we're at. So you have chronic pain, you do the risk assessment. You look at you know, objective things, you look at these tools, the ORT, the DIRE, you look at their morphine equivalent daily dose, you look at the prescription drug monitoring plan, and you put people in three buckets, low risk, medium risk, high risk. So you're, and that kind of dictates how often you do a urine drug test. This was done in 2013, but it kind of makes sense. Someone's on low MED, their screening tools show that they're low risk for aberrant behavior, and the prescription drug monitoring plan says that they've been really very responsible in using their opiates. Do you feel comfortable with this? Do you think this is accurate? It generally is accurate, but there's a lot of room for error here too. So let's look at the future. What does the future hold for us? So let's look at gen genetics. And I might be very clear, I, I, I was the pr principal investigator on a large uh, genetics grant, I'm gonna show you the data. But for be really clearly transparent, what I know about genetics is don't marry your first cousin. <laughs> <laughs>
I'm pretty sure that's true. Um, so we had a great geneticist with us. So is there evidence? You know, what is there evidence about, about that being a genetic marker for opioid use disorder? So there, there's lots of evidence that opioid addiction has substantial genetic origins. These are all these twin studies. And basically, that, uh, they are consistent that, that about half of the risk for developing an opioid use disorder, about 48%, is genetically determined. Now, there's 52% in there, right? But 48%, so that's a pretty heavy loading. But looking for the magical unicorn you know, uh, gene that's going to tell you whether your patient's at high risk or not is like a needle in a haystack. So, because it's very complex, like some diseases such as sickle cell anemia, cystic fibrosis are single gene disorders, right? M much different looking for that, that needle. And vulnerability to addiction undoubtedly has a more complex genetic basis. Complex diseases may be polygenic, being caused by many genes, but some are, are considered to be oleogenic when only a few genes play a significant role. And look at the, the statistics. The human genome contains approximately 25 to 40,000 genes encoded in 3.2 billion nucleotides of DNA. That is a big haystack. And we do have some, we do have some candidate genes, uh, the uh, OPR, MR1, uh, you know, the CYP, 2D61, and I think it's going to be combined. The problem with this research is that there's been really small sample sizes, because you need big sample sizes to do, the, to do the assays, mixed ethnic groups, you know, so you're kind of making that harder to find the particular gene, only one sequence variant genotype, variation in case definitions, and lack of a control. So you really need that because you're spinning controls versus cases to see what gene pops out, whatever disease you're looking at. So we were fortunate and blessed to have a six-year grant from the uh, a National Institute on Drug Abuse and NIDA looking at clinical and genetic characteristics of opioid addiction and chronic pain. These are my wonderful collaborators. And I'll just kind of run through this. But what we were looking at, we looked at Caucasians because if we have multiple ethnicities, it makes the pile bigger. And if we could find this genetic marker, we could replicate it in other, other ethnicities. So we wanted to look at patients who had... Uh, all had chronic non-malignant pain. None had a past history of substance abuse except nicotine. And we had two groups, ones that were on long-term opioid therapy. On average, it was like nine months that did not develop any signs of an opioid use disorder or aberrant behavior. Those are the controls. The experimentals were ones that are similar, chronic pain, no past history, but at, were exposed to opiates and went on to develop an opioid use disorder. They're being treated like in buprenorphine clinics or methadone clinics. So you really have pure cases and controls. What we did was to, and I'll skip this, we looked at a lot of different measures. We obviously obtained blood, looked at demographics, the EMR. We followed the cases, I mean the controls, for a year to make sure that none of them converted to being people who developed a use disorder, only two in a thousand converted. So we had a pretty good marker here. We looked at coping strategies. We looked at social support, depression, anxiety. The mini looks at all access one, access two psychiatric disorders, family history, all these different kind of things we looked at. And this is what we ended up with. We had no history of substance abuse. We're exposed. The patients who did not develop was over 1,000. It came out weird. 1,073, not 107. And ones that developed an opioid use disorder was 512. So pretty large cohorts. And here's some of the results. So the coping strategies questionnaire developed by Frank Keefe at Duke looks at the way that pain patients cope with their pain, right? And what we found is that diverting attention, and the blue is the ones who did not develop a use disorder, they tended to use that more significantly than the ones that had a use disorder. Um, uh, coping self-statements, you know, about how they cope with pain, again, the controls were higher. 
But the other one was catastrophizing. Catastrophizing was much higher in the patients that had pain and substance use disorders. And again, remember, catastrophizing is one of the risk factors for chronification of pain. But also, craving, craving is related to catastrophizing. They found, this article found a, a huge association between catastrophizing and craving in, in patients with pain. And a second one found that catastrophizing was a risk factor for addiction, right? I mean, you know, I'm sorry, for suicide. So again, catastrophizing is well-managed with what? Cognitive behavioral therapy, acceptance of commitment therapy. So this is kind of a low-hanging fruit of a risk that we can mitigate. Now let's look at predicting opioid use disorders. So this is a, sort of the study. I'll make sure I'm on time. Okay, plenty of time. So this is what looked at all this different data, and this is called stepwise selection. These are the ones that popped out in the psychosocial variables as predicting use disorder. So it was catastrophizing, major depression, and the patients did not feel they had subjective support. And that, those were three that predicted. We looked at dichotomous data. These are all the ones that were significant. So it was being male, smoking. Look at the odds ratio of smoking, 9.8. Yeah. Uh, major depression, obsessive-compulsive uh, uh, obsessive obsessive disorder, PTSD, and antisocial personality. We, we dropped out antisocial personality because it was a very low yield in the whole data. It just didn't make sense. Then we looked at continuous data. Again, all these factors came in. And what we do is you kind of go through a stepwise and which ones are most predictive, which ones account for the most variance. And what we found was smoking. Look at the, look at the chi-square of over 100 you know, in smoking. The uh, average pain, the Duke, drugs, um, family history, and major depression. But smoking was really popped out here as an indicator, and we'll talk about why that is. If you look at, like, area under the curve, which is how much of the variance is accounted for by just, just those factors, that it was almost 93% of the variance was accounted for. So someone, I gave this talk at a major thing, and someone said, why do you need genetics? <laughs> you know, this is pretty, pretty suggestive. Is everyone following what we're, what we're seeing here? So this is a study that's under review. We took a group of these patients, ones that developed OUD and ones that didn't. We looked at, we asked them one question, have you had a cigarette the last seven days? We held all the other risk factors for uh, substance abuse, hold them out, held them out, and controlling for all these different factors that whether they smoked or not had an odds ratio of 14 in predicting opioid use disorder. Is anyone impressed by that? Why is that? Because nicotine sensitizes the dopaminergic system, which underlies addiction. Now you're already sensitized with nicotine, and then you get exposed to opiates. It's kind of this combination puts them at far greater risk. So if you had to ask one question of a patient is, do you smoke? And one in particular is, how soon do you have a cigarette upon awakening? And if it's within 10 minutes, they really have a problem, right? Anyone wowed by that or not? We have one question we can ask. Um, so look at the opioid risk tool. Is everyone familiar with the opioid risk tool by Webster? Right? So Lynn developed this, and basically he just took some of the general risk factors for substance abuse, you know, family history, personal history, age. Now, interesting history of pre-adolescent sexual abuse, and it was only marked for women. And that really doesn't fit with the addiction literature. The addiction literature is this ACE, adverse childhood events. So it doesn't matter if you're a woman or a male. If someone locked you in a closet when you're a child, that's an adverse effect. That's a risk factor for developing a use disorder. And then he had this kind of weighting between men and women based on kind of the literature, like, you know, men are two times more likely to have an alcohol problem, so we're going to give that a two-to-one rating. It's not really psychometrically very sound. 
So we just published this article in the Journal of Pain, and what we did was look at the discriminant predictive validity of the ORT, again, comparing patients who developed opioid use disorders and ones that didn't. And again, all these studies, all these different tools were developed on pain patients that had aberrant behavior. This was actually people who developed this, this disorder. So it re we did a revised unweighted ORT. So basically what we did it was take out the sexual abuse question because it didn't make sense, and we, and we looked at it, and then we took out the, the weighting and just said yes or no. So interestingly, that the total ORT, the, the original ORT, had an odds ratio of predicting OUD of 1.6. If you take out the, um, the sexual abuse uh, question, it stays at 1.6. You take out the unweighted sexual abuse, it went to over 3. So that's interesting. So this is what the tool looks like, and anyone can use it if you want. So it's well-validated on this particular group, and these are people who developed a use disorder. So again, this is kind of where the future is, is looking at good data and good measurements. So what's the bottom line here? Pain is complex, right? I'm, I'm simple, but pain is complex. Um, it's lots of psychiatric comorbidities, family history, social problems. You know, a lot of my patients are like country western songs when they come in, you know, and teasing them apart what's affecting what is really complex and it takes time. How many people do cognitive medicine or nursing? Like primary care, like no one's paying you $1,000 to put a needle in someone's back? None of you do, really? Some people do, right? I don't think the op opioid crisis is going to change until we pay clinicians to think. Right? So you really get reimbursed to say, I'm going to spend an hour with this patient and figure out what the heck is going on with them. You can't do this in 15 minutes. Opiates can be effective for some patients with chronic pain. Opiates can be effective for some patients with chronic pain. There are people who do well on it, and we all know those patients. And we're all getting pressure to take them all off opiates, and it's going to be a bad outcome. There's a serious problem of opioid abuse diversion and fatal overdoses, most of which aren't pain patients. But the more we prescribe, the more it goes into the aquifer, the more we are exposing people to the disease of addiction. And there's more evidence needed to understand the optical mis risk assessment, opioid selection, which ones have higher or lower, uh, monitoring and risk mitigation. We, know more, we need more data. And assessing risk of abuse is a very dynamic, ongoing process. I have patients that have been sober for 20 years. They go to AA every day. They're, they're perfect patients, and they just fall off the rails one day because we're not kind of following what's going on in their life. And discovering the genetic markers is still a work in progress. You know, we still have a lot of work to do on this. There's a large study I'm involved with up in Geisinger, Pennsylvania, which has like 3 million people, and we're collecting lots of data, and I'm hoping that someday we'll be able to have that genetic test. No opiate is safe, and no patient is no risk right? Period. Your grandmother may be at risk. Another story. <laughs> There's a big clinic that didn't do urine drug testing. They did it, some people did it, some people didn't. A new administrator came in and said, you know, this is really not standard of care. Anyone who's on an opiate should get tested at least once annually, right? So they tested everybody. Mrs. Jones, 84-year-old with OA, um, was on methadone 5 milligrams TID. Her urine drug test came back showing no metabolites of methadone. So her primary care doctor said, Mrs. Jones, I'm really com confused why it doesn't show in your urine. She goes, I haven't used that in four years. He goes, what do you do with the prescription? Oh, I sell it to my neighbor. I can't live on Social Security. So even your grandmother <laughs> may be at risk. More selective and cautious prescribing of opiates are absolutely indicated. No one has been standing up here saying we should go back to the old days, right? High dosing, no risk stratification. We need to see assess risk as a standard practice. Does everyone use like pain contracts? 
So when do you revisit it? So I tell people, you have to set goals. If you're treating me for hypertension, do you ever take my blood pressure again? You know? So we say, okay, I'm going to give you opiates, but what goals do you have? Well, I want to get back to work, do this, this. And okay, let's revisit that in six months. We haven't achieved those goals, so maybe you shouldn't be on this molecule. Routine integration and risk mitigation strategies match with level of assessed risk. Need for readily available and use of effective non-opioid treatments. We need to change the environment where we can't get people into non-opioid therapies. And we need to be aware of the silent epidemic of suicide, right? These people are at high risk. 50% of patients with pain, up to 80% have daily suicidal ideation. Patients with pain who have, um, are with pain have double the risk of ending their life by, by suicide than the general population. Patients who have substance use disorders, it's even higher. So someone comes in with a substance use disorder and pain, they are loaded for a potential for suicide. And one needs to be aware about it and have an action plan. My last slide is this. Yes, we have an opioid crisis, but we also have a pain crisis. And what we're doing is shifting from one to the other. And there are people who suffer greatly. A study that came out in the VA, VA is getting everybody off opiates, and there's been a 9% increase in completed suicide. I don't consider that a good outcome. So we need to look at both of these as epidemics. We have to change the way we deliver pain care. We have to have more lobbying to get insurance companies to pay for things that we know help, but the patients can't get, a, get a access to. It's not as simple as not prescribing opiates or prescribing opiates. So these are all the people that make me look much better than I am. Uh, thank you for your time. And, and